Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. Uh, David has gone rogue for this uh, podcast and has gone to do an interview all by himself. But in order that I still feel involved, uh, they've allowed me to do the introduction. Uh, so here I am standing in my kitchen doing the intro into my phone. And this is a special podcast because David has been to interview uh, the former director of football at Tottenham and Liverpool, Damien Camoli. In this episode, you will hear him talk about how the uh, signing of Jordan Henderson almost got him sacked, Luis Suarez and the worst moment of his career, what he really thinks about Daniel Levy and also why he has walked out on his latest job at Fenerbahce. To take you through it all, here's David. Well, Damien, thanks for joining us on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on uh, a visit to London. We've got the privilege of speaking to you before you shoot off to a game. So thank you for your time. But first, could you tell us a bit more about Fenerbahce, why you left, what happened? Because it's a story that I don't feel has properly penetrated the UK media like it has in Turkey. Uh, So just tell us what happened there. <laughs> Where to begin? It's got to be difficult to summarize 18 or 19 months in, in a few sentences. But basically, I've, I've served my notice. I resigned on the, t- on the 25th of February 2019, so a year ago, uh, because I didn't feel the environment was right. I didn't feel we could put a structure in place that would take the club forward, which is why I've been brought in in the first place, you know, for a three years contract, which now in football is becoming long term. Um, and I was not—I was really not comfortable in that environment uh, a year ago. So I, s- I served my notice. I resigned, um, and then uh, I had two choices: either to wait and see what happens, and hoping that the club will let me go, or I had to pay up 12 months of my salary to the club. And obviously, that's something you know I, I couldn't do. Um, and I've asked the, the board many times to leave, and, and they, they, they refused for me to leave until about a month, six weeks ago, where really, you know, there was a. I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't see the end of the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I had to say it, you know, publicly. I tweeted for the first time in my life. I never had any social media account or anything like this. I had to open one. And then she said, you know, this is not right and, uh, and and we need to do something about it. So based on this, then the club has accepted to let me go. What was not right? The president was buying players from what I read on your Twitter posts. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's in public domain. So uh, there is no confidentiality on this. Yeah, he, he, the president decided to sign a player. The, the coach and myself didn't know he was coming. Uh, which, you know, I respected his decision and I, I said at the time, someone who invests so much of his time and his, and his money into the club and he's the president, so he's allowed to do uh, what he wants to do with it. Uh, but obviously I was not comfortable with that. And then there was, there was, you know, if I resigned a year ago, actually a year ago today or a year ago yesterday, actually, uh, there was some reason and I thought it, the situation was manageable throughout. We, we had very you know a great summer transfer window we, um, I think we had Fenerbahce had the best team in the league or have or should have the best team certainly the best players in the league and things were, were not working out so that's why I had to make a decision you know it I, I think there is so much negativity around the club and inside the club that the, the huge frustration for me is the first time I faced this in my career is we our two and, and those players are common names I mean 
people will be familiar with those names in, in England. We last season we signed Islam Slimani on loan from Leicester, and then we signed Andrea Ayew on loan from and from Swansea. They were our two biggest recruits, and they must have scored three goals between the two of them. And they were deemed, you know, seen as massive failure. Uh, they were disaster, etc. And I kept saying those players are good players. We have a problem internally if those players don't deliver. And then this is an Andrea you plays for Swansea. I was checking his, his, his stats. You know, he played 33, scored 13 at five assists for Winger. It's great figures. He didn't even have five assists with Fenerbahce last season. And Slimani has taken the French league, uh, you know, like a storm. He's, he's played 17, uh, scored nine and had seven assists. Uh, and I'm, I am saying to people at the club, you know, in Istanbul, in Fenerbahce, we have a problem. Because if they deliver before mm. we, they come and deliver after they left, we have to question ourselves. And and people will not hear it, will just not take it. So all this negativity, uncertainty made me very, very uncomfortable. And that's why I decided to leave. I find it quite funny how I used to interview you years ago when the idea of a sporting director or technical director was so foreign in England that we needed people to speak about it, to educate us in the British media. Um because it was so rare. Now it's rare that clubs don't have a sporting director and we're making stories about Manchester United need one, Tottenham need one. Um, it seems to have come full circle. Your sort of profession is now finally commonplace. How essential is it to have a good sporting director? Well, I, re- I always remember my first press conference at Spurs. So it was in September, October 2005. Uh, all the journalists ask me the same question, and and uh, it's say, they say, "Do you think there will be a lot of sporting directors in the future in you, in English football?" And I said, "Every club will have one in the future," and they, they all laugh. If they didn't laugh, they kill me. Were you there? <laughs> I probably was. So you were probably one of those who were <laughs> laughing at me at the time. And then you know, 15 years later, then the as you say, the clubs who don't have one, uh, people are, are saying are screaming for one. Manchester United being one. Uh, I will put Spurs in a different category because they've got like in Stevichin, uh, the acting sporting director who's, who is doing an, an outstanding job. He's been doing an outstanding job. And we worked together at Tottenham, we worked together at Liverpool before and um, what he's, he's, he's done, the work he's done is, is great. So um, I think in, in the, at the time where I was thinking about this recently, so well, when you see teams, football teams coming into stadiums now, you've got two coaches, one for the players and the close, you know, coaching staff yep. and one for the backroom staff. That's right. And it was the case at Fenerbahce. We traveled with two, two coaches. Um, and now, how if you are a coach, how can you manage a, a, a backroom staff and coaching staff where you have more staff than you have players? It's so impossible. You have, you have to manage 25 millionaires who all want to play, you know, high-profile players, all international players, all on massive money, and then you have to to manage. Some clubs have got twenty analysts. How can if you are a, co- a head coach, how can you manage twenty analysts? Incredible. Seven physios and five masseurs and a high-performance department and research department and things like this. It's just it's just not manageable. So, and then and obviously. Uh, you've got all the transfers, the transfer market, the recruitment area, the academy. I mean, the the job the job is too so big now, 
and so, I would say, complicated and so global that you need a lot of brain power in, in football clubs and it cannot only be with one individual. One question before we leave Fenerbahce that I'm, I'm keen to pick your brain on. Um, Verdat Mariki is a player who has been in the English media a lot striker he's not particularly young but he's not old yet he's scoring goals quite an interesting background he scored against England at St Mary's and caught a lot of people's eyes Uh, is he a player that could be coming to the Premier League at some point do you think I think he's got everything uh, to be a Premier League player um, he, you say he's not young. Uh, I, I always say he's a young 25-year-old. <laughs> the reason being, until two, 18 months or 19 years months ago, he was playing in second division in Turkey. And, and trust me, it's not the it's not the best of of leagues. Uh, so his his progress and improvement have been uh, have been massive. So he's got so much to learn yet. And and when you see his performances, notably with with, with Kosovo against England, where he turned apart um, Maguire and Keane, and I was calculating between the two of them, it's about 130 million pounds worth of yep. transfer fees, yep. and we paid three and a half million euros for this player, <laughs> <laughs> and he absolutely destroyed them. So there is a lot of room for improvement in his better coaching, in his better structure in the team. You know, I felt so sorry for him at Fenerbahce, the time I was there, to see that such a good player didn't get more opportunity opportunity to score just just because the team needs some structure offensively that he hasn't got. So if he gets... You know, I compare him all the time with Olivier Giroud because I think he's more advanced than Giroud at the same age. But Giroud had made two key great decisions. He went to Montpellier from French second division, won the league with Montpellier, in one season and then moved to Arsenal and then came across Arsene Wenger who made him the player he is. So this player is Olivier Giroud. He needs to, he needs to find his Arsene Wenger who's going to develop him. Uh, and, you know, if I was sporting director of a club in the Premier League, okay, if you are Man City, maybe, uh, you know, he's not ready for that, uh, Man City or Liverpool, but he's certainly ready for 95% of the other clubs in the Premier League. And have they been watching him, some of them? Well, yeah, all the times we've been there, you know, we were, we, we kept getting ticket requests and, and people calling us and what do you think about him and, and people grabbing us at games and our senior player is really doing great. And obviously the game at Southampton, we played against England, he, he was outstanding. Um, Kosovo are still in the, run, in, the, in, in, in the running for qualification for the European, 20, European Championship. They play in Macedonia uh, on the 22nd of March, game I'm planning to attend. Uh, because there is a former Fenerbahce player in, in Macedonia and a current Fenerbahce player in Kosovo. Uh, so if they, they do qualify for the European Championship and then he does well there, his, his price will go through the roof, sorry. And on top of that, physically he's got incredible stats. He can run all day, he can sprint all day. He's dedicated, he's professional, he's fluent in English. He, he ticks so many boxes, he's scary. To a time that many people here will, will remember you for, Liverpool. Liverpool are now on course for the Premier League title. They're flying towards it. They're already European champions. They could retain that title. It's building to be one of the most special times in in Liverpool's history. But it was a time that was started by FSG, Fenway Sports Group, and their first appointment of note was you. So can you take us back to that time, Um 
what was it like their approach to you what were they saying what did you did you know that they had this plan and that it could come to fruition and what do you make of what's happening there now first of all they've approached me because uh there is a relationship between them and billy bean Bonnie Bean, you know being remembered yep, yep, as yep. the money ball uh, exactly. person both the book and 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 the movie um and they were looking for someone who who could run the club and have a, a data driven approach uh which i had when i was at tottenham and, and then at liverpool so that i think that's the first reason why they they, they were, they've approached me then we try to put things to get you know a, a plan you know long term for the academy etc etc uh we started we we signed some good, good players decent players yep I also knew when I took the job because I total coincidence. Uh, a few few months before I took the Liverpool job, uh, I read a book called The Green Monster, and the book was on on the story of the Boston Red Sox and the Fenway Sports Group because they own that team as well, baseball yep. team. Um, and I could see that they will be absolutely ruthless if they didn't feel comfortable with something. And they were ruthless with me at the time. Uh, I still feel it was an injustice. You know, we won trophy, first of three trophies since 2007, I think it was. Yep. We got to the cup final as well. Uh, so two finals in the same season. We had no money. Uh, we had to borrow money from them to buy players. We had to borrow money from them to buy Luis Suarez. I was begging them to give me 21 million to buy Luis Suarez. And they told me, that money you are spending in January is your summer transfer budget, so you won't have it in the summer. I said, wow. I said no problem. You know, just just Get so him. there was no money. Uh, the wage bill was through the roof. We had financial fair play, potential financial fair play issues. I mean, everybody knows the story. You know, with the previous ownership as well with Hicks and Gillette. So it was a totally different context. Um, so I was, I always felt that something you know could happen, and and I think. After I left, then they changed the structure of the club at ownership level. Mike, Mike Golden took over from John Henry and Tom Werner. And then he brought stability in the way they run the football club. And then the rest is history. And it's great for Liverpool. It's great for English football. And it's great for, for Liverpool. What's John Henry and Tom Werner like? You spent time with them, I think, in their homes or mm-hmm. around the time you were negotiating to take the job. Tell our audiences a bit more about the people that are running Liverpool now. Well, I think, I really think, that, right, the, the, the Mike Golden, who actually, my understanding, runs the club day to day now. Yeah, yeah, that's he's, right. He's the one I knew probably the least because he came onto the scene uh, towards the end of my time there. I, I connected with him very quickly because you could see he's, he's, he's the one who's got the best football understanding. And I learned afterwards that actually... He tried to buy Liverpool before January and Tom Werner did, ah. and they didn't know that. Even though they were partnered within SVG, he tried to he tried to create a syndicate, you know, of money of people, investors to buy consortium, be, be, be a consortium before before January and Tom Werner. So uh, I can't talk too much about him, except that I'm hearing very good things and the way he runs the club. Uh, John Henry is very analytic driven, you know, very he's quite cold. Uh, straight to the point. Uh, Tom Werner is more, he's warm, he comes from the entertainment business, so, you know, extremely successful at, at his job. So both are very extremely successful. So different personality. They complement each other quite well. 
managing up was a challenge uh yeah. you know time difference distance etc um and they they live in different places as well within the US so it was a challenge i think they made the decision with me to 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 part ways i think they panicked and i think they liked experience because i think we were right on the right path and we had the right players and the right ingredients and i remember so they came they they sacked me a week late then they they left and then John Henry came a few days later like a week later and then at reviews and and meeting with my staff and uh some of the f- my former staff or colleague called me and say you won't believe what he said he said in the meeting oh my god i sacked the wrong person so wow <laughs> so obviously that stayed with me at, until this day but it's 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 the way it is it's, it's football they said they had sacked the wrong person. John Henry said it to a couple of people at the club when they did the reviews and the meeting yeah, on my, you know, after my departure. On what basis? I I don't know because it's the type of thing that you, when you hear this, you want to just put the phone down and and go and either you take a cold shower or you go on the jog, you know, on a, on 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 you go running for about an hour, <laughs> an hour and a half, <laughs> and you want to empty your your. Uh, your brain. One of those staff that you mention um, is Michael Edwards, who mm-hmm. is now um, essentially running the show on the ground at mm-hmm. Melwood and, and Anfield, along with the likes of Mike Gordon, link between the sort of board and Jurgen Klopp, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know more about Michael Edwards. Well, I was looking for somebody. I, I wanted to create an analytics department and I, I didn't know where to start in terms of, I didn't I did know where to start in terms of structure and what I wanted in it. So data from where, how to use the data, etc. But I, I was looking for the right person, and I wanted someone who had both a football background and an analytics background, because the most difficult thing when you deal with data is to be able to make sense of the data. Point one, but more importantly, to transmit the data to the coaches or to players in a way that they can make sense of out of it, and that will be useful to them. And that doesn't come around very often, especially you t- we're talking about ten, what eight, nine years ago. So I asked a few people around the game and I actually asked one of the data provider who was working in the Premier League at the time. I said, okay, I'm looking for that type of guy. Who is the best one? And one of them told me Michael Edwards at Tottenham. So everybody thought I worked with Michael at Tottenham because obviously I, I, yeah. I was at Spurs before. But it was not the case. I never worked with him. Um, so I called him. I said, "This is what I'm planning. To, that's the position I'm planning to create. Are you interested?" Yeah, so we had a couple of meetings, and then and then he he, he took the job. He's a very very bright guy, very bright. I mean, we didn't work over there for a long period of time. But when I left, I told him, "You're going to take over." He said, "No way." I said, "I'm sure they're going to make you a sporting director at some point and give you more responsibilities." And obviously, when Brendan Rodgers came in and said, you know, I never worked with a sporting director, blah, blah, which I never believed. Uh, I thought, you know, it's just Michael would just wait there for a while and then they're probably going to create that position later on because with the, the US sports ownership people, every team has got a, a, what they call a general manager or president of football operation or baseball operation or basketball operation. So they... they, they I'm, I was sure they would create that job uh, at at some point or recreate that job because it's the job I had, which they did. You may feel that their decision was an injustice on you, but 
did you know or did you sense with the structure and the personnel that they were putting in place that they would go on to enjoy the success that they're seeing today? No, because it's it, it was impossible to say at the time. Um, I thought our academy structure was very good at the time, led by Fragment Parlon and, and Pep Segura. Pep Segura who then became general manager of FC Barcelona yep. a, f- a few years later mm-hmm. with a lot of success. He just left the club. Um, he's, he's just he's one of the best football brain I've a- ever came across in my career, Pep. He's just amazing at reading the game, understanding the game, seeing the game. Uh, so I thought we had a great academy set up that, that will produce players. Um, I, I thought the team needed reinforcement, but again, we didn't have money. So they, they had to make a decision, investing a lot of money, uh, which they did later on. Um, and then it really started with Luis. You know, I think Luis Suarez, the year they missed the championship just by, by was it a point or something, or two points? Just slightly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought Luis was kind of catalyst of this, and he, he he really took the team and the club into a different dimension, and they came so close from winning the title. Um, then things went south when he when he left, and then they made the right appointment. When I think they made two key decisions after that: is one to appoint uh, Klopp, and two to uh, to organize the club around around Michael Edwards and having another sporting director. Uh, and and that put them onto the right tracks. One of the players you signed was Jordan Henderson, who is now the captain. Uh, he lifted the European Cup and he's on course to lift the Premier League title and perhaps more as well. He, he's set to go down as one of their modern or maybe all-time greats in, in that sense, in terms of what he might win. Am I right in thinking that the owners attributed that signing as one of the reasons for sacking you to your face? Yeah, the day they 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 sacked me, they said you made a big mistake with Jordan Anderson. So I said, "Are you sure?" They said, "Yeah, it's a big mistake." So I said, "Okay, well, I think you're wrong." Uh, but what can I uh, what can I say? You know, they are the owner of the club, the owners of the club, and if they want to make that decision, they make that decision. Um, I was convinced he would be special. I was convinced he will be a Liverpool captain because he had all the attributes to become Liverpool captain as a player and and and, and more than anything else as a person. Uh, so I'm delighted to see what he's achieved. I think there's a lot more to come, as you just said. I think he could win something on the international stage as well. He's going to win the Premier League. Uh, I think he's going to win a lot more trophies going forward with Liverpool. And he deserves all of it. They weren't the only ones who were sceptical about him. There were a lot of people. Sir Alex Ferguson, lots of the media and the public, they wrote Henderson off. I think what Alex said at the time, he said they didn't go for him because they were concerned about a potential uh, chronicle injuries, which we were not concerned about as well, as at all. Uh, yeah, pretty much everybody told us we, were, we made the wrong decision. We played him out of position, to be fair, and he knew that, and we told him, and Kenny Douglas told him many times, you know, uh, because he came into Connie's office once, he said, he said boss, I apologise, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not playing as well as I should be playing. And Kenny said, what are you talking about? I'm very happy with your performances, and I'm sorry to put you to play in the wrong position, but it's, you are very useful for the team at the moment playing there, because 
you are working so hard and you are so disciplined tactically that you playing on the right allows us to play in four four two. Um so don't worry about it. So there there were a lot of doubters, but I think throughout the years he showed he should, but may, I think what amazed me the most is his personality. You know, he's such a winner. That that's where he impresses me he impresses me the most. Just the way he approach games, the way he, how competitive he is. I was talking last year after they lost in Barcelona. I was talking to Arsene Wenger the next day and I said, what will you do? He said, first of all, the first player I put on the team sheet is Jordan Anderson because he's the soul of that team and he's a winner and he will refuse to give up and he could carry the team forward, you know, on his shoulder during the, the second leg. And it's exactly what happened. There are a lot of people who aren't quite sure of his perfect position. Uh, Jurgen Klopp's experimented with him and also England have two where should he be playing to excel at his maximum for club and country I'm not sure about that that's why I'm happy not to be a coach I'm only a sporting <laughs> director so you I, I provide the I provide the players and then the coach uh, can can find their position I think at one point I thought he could he could play holding midfield on a regular basis obviously uh, Jürgen Klepp sees it differently uh, but but he's right because considering the success the success they've had uh, maybe England will play him there uh, next summer uh, because there is no obvious candidate is there and he can do that job he definitely can do that job I think this kind of number 8 6 head position is ideal for, for him there in the 4-3-3 at Liverpool because he's got legs he's got great he's got great vision you know he's he's, he's his first touch, his, he makes a lot of passes first touch in the back of the defense that are absolutely killing you when you're trying to defend against him. Uh, and, you know, it's a great story around him because uh, we recruited him main, mainly with data, mainly with using statistics. Uh, he came, we were looking at data, looking at another player uh, on the, in the Premier League. And then... We, when we put the data together, so you've got filters, and we looked at filters of, at the time it was chances created, and we're looking at attacking players, and suddenly this kid from Sunderland, who is 20 or 21 year old, he, he, he comes as defensive midfield, he comes in as, as good as data, and chances created, as a law of attacking players in the Premier League. And he created as many chances as Steven Gerrard that season, all due respect to Sunderland, he was playing for Sunderland, not for Liverpool, and he was not Steven Gerrard. So I thought, I thought, hold on a minute, we're on to something there. And then I remember very well that same day I pulled out his fitness data from the game at Anfield and at Sunderland. He played and he was through the roof. I mean, he was all charts. To, I mean, he can run all day, he can sprint, he can do whatever you want. And then I called our UK chief scout the same day. I said... I know you've seen Jordan Anderson. Just refresh my memory. He said, "I love him, and you need to go to see him urgently." I said, "Yeah, I think <laughs> I think you're right." So he was just like a, you know, a red flag, or yeah, a red flag, or right green flag. Let's say a red flag <laughs> because it's Liverpool. That data gave us, which was backed up by uh, by scouting observations, and then Kenny absolutely loved him. And when Kenny met him, Kenny was blown away with his, pers with his personality, and so was I actually. So you take you take all the you know the first filter of recruitment in in a big club like this is is character and personality. You take that box. Um, 
then you've got the data then you've got live scouting uh, and all 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 those boxes were ticked very very easily and the, the, the funny side of this story is they um, I had a budget of 15 million okay I couldn't go over the budget and even that was really difficult for Kenny and I to get 15 million from the owners owners for for Jordan and one of the last discussion I had with the then uh, Sunderland chairman was Niall Quinn. He said, you know, Damien, you don't realize, because they wanted more, a lot more than 15. He said, you don't realize how good he is and, and his character and personality. He said the last time they played the derby against Newcastle, towards the end of the game, he took a free kick, a free kick, and then the ball flew into the stands and he got a lot of sticks from the Newcastle fans. He said that week, the following week, he took 300 free kicks at training because he was so mad of himself. And I put the phone down and I thought, if that's the type of personality, we should do anything, we can, everything we can do to get him. And then we went up to, I went up to 60, I always remember, 16.75 million to the great displeasure of the others <laughs> who absolutely <laughs> slaughtered me on the phone. Yeah. Um, and I called Kenny. I said, Kenny, you need you need to help me on that one. He said, it's a great deal. It's a great deal. If they want to call me, they should call me. I tell them. I told them. I will tell them we did a great deal. And uh, that's the story. And it was easy to execute it with the player in the end. The player was very easy. Yeah. I mean, the player was very very easy because he was desperate to come. I mean, I would not say he was desperate to come, but I know he had meeting with United. I know he had meeting with Arsenal. Uh, and, and he had a meeting with us and then very very early he said oh it's Liverpool and, and nothing else Can you take us inside that day in 2011 when Fernando Torres ended up moving from Liverpool to Chelsea and Andy Carroll coming from Newcastle to Liverpool you could probably write a book on it but just in a nutshell what was it like inside the boardroom or wherever you were that day maybe you weren't in a boardroom I, I do remember the day as you can imagine but it all started the night before because I had days and days and of discussion with with Fernando Torres and his agent you know I said you cannot go you cannot go you cannot go we can't afford to let you go we put Luis Suarez to play with you and now you want to go and he told me very late during the window as well and then we kept saying to Chelsea it's not for sale and Chelsea kept bidding and higher and higher and higher up to the point where they got to a figure that we couldn't say no to because he was a figure written in, in Fernando's contract I see. Uh, and then we kind of had a moral agreement uh, obviously it was done before we arrived that if somebody reached that level we had to let him go and to the amazement of everybody at the club, um, uh, Chelsea got to that figure. Um, so that was one thing. Uh, and then I think the night before deadline day, uh, I had a call from someone who had nothing to do with transfers, who said, look, I just heard from Newcastle chairman and they will entertain the sale of Andy Carroll. And we were stuck at the time because Fernando was going and we didn't know who to replace him with. So... Uh, I kind of agreed to deal with Newcastle that night. Then the next day, they read in the newspaper how much we were getting for Torres, though they changed the deal and increased by five million, <laughs> which absolutely drove me crazy. Um, anyway, so we we decided to do, we more yeah we kind of decided to do it. And then I'm waiting for the owners to wake up in America. At the same time, we are finishing Luis Suarez transfer, so Luis is in my office, and there are people going and 
living and his wife was there, his daughter was there and they are lovely, etc. And then at one point, I remember very well, I, I, I thought I need to think about this and I went to Kenny's office, it was dark and I, I for about an hour, an hour and a half, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what do we do? Do we do the car transfer? Do we don't do it? You know, um, what the, the implications? And then I, I emailed the owners and I said, I need a conference call with you. So we did a conference call, the, the owners, Kenny, I think the chief executive at the time and myself, and I said, this is the deal. This is what we can do with it. This is the risk. This is, you know, uh, what we can not do if we decide not to do anything. And then we voted. Um, and then we knew we were paying over the odds for, with Andy, but he was young, he was English. Uh, and I, at the time, I told them, I said, if things don't work out, we'll send him for 20 million to a West Ham, to back to Newcastle, uh, Aston Villa. And he was sold for 20 million to West Ham, actually, a few years later. So it's the scenario I had in my mind at the time. Either it was a massive hit, massive success, or it was not. But then there was some there was some money still to be made, you know, so we knew we were overpaying, but we were also getting incredible money for, 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 for Torres and, and Chelsea were grossly overpaying as well at the same time. Um, so that was the day and then I got around five o'clock, I think we decided to go for it once we voted uh, all together. Uh, and then I got on the phone um, to the agent of, of of Andy, and then he starts saying, you know, I want this and I want that, and and this is this is not right. And you know, if you pay 35 million, I want more money. I said, look, it's going to be very simple. This is my offer. It's five o'clock. The window shuts in six hours. So you take it or you leave it. It's up to you. I I, I can't play games. And he said, I'll call you back. He called me back. He said, it's all agreed. And then that's then we organize a helicopter, blah blah blah. <laughs> I wanted to sign both transfer agreements, uh, just because I didn't want anybody to get blamed for it in the future. You know, if suddenly Torres ends up being a hundred million players and Andy ends up being a disaster. So I remember the club secretary at the time. She said, uh, "I'm going to sign the transfer agreement." I said, "No, no, don't. It's my responsibility. I'm going to put my signature and my name to it. If things don't work, nobody can blame anybody but me." And I remember signing the... I, it was quite strange. You know, you signed 50 million transfer <laughs> on one side and 35 on the other side. Wow. Uh, you mentioned Luis Suarez. Before I move it on from Liverpool, I, we could speak for hours. This is crazy. But um, you mentioned Luis Suarez. You were very closely involved in, in the situation involving Luis Suarez and Patrice Evra. And recently, Jamie Carragher spoke on the subject and he apologised um, for the stance of the Liverpool players at the time wearing the T-shirts in support of Suarez. He apologised to Patrice Evra, who was a fellow Fre is a fr fellow Frenchman of yours. Um, do you look back on that situation with any regrets? I think you had to make a statement on the day. I regret pretty much everything. I regret uh, our attitude. I regret the way we approached it. I regret my reaction in, in the FA tribunal because I sat throughout, you know, the two or three days we were there and uh, and I didn't react well when they, they gave the sentence because I was in, uh, I didn't agree at the time. Um, it's probably the worst, the worst moment of my career uh, because of frustration, because uh, I think we kind of isolated ourselves from the rest of the world, and it was it was the wrong thing to do. We should have taken advice from outside, you know, take uh, 
not not yeah maybe legal advice but PR advice somebody who was not caught in the storm you know I said oh hold on a minute you should wake up there because the reality outside is not what you are seeing or feeling internally uh, I think the fact it was a play for Manchester United you know almost made things for us uh, a thousand times worse than, than they should have been and and I think we reacted even in the worst way because it was Manchester United and the rivalry between the two clubs. Um, I felt sorry. I, f I feel we didn't protect and we didn't look after Luis as we should have. We didn't give him the defense he should have got. We didn't give him the advice he should have got. Um, and that's where, you know, usually I see the players as, as my child you know especially now i'm getting older and mm. some of them have, have got the age of my kids and <laughs> um and and it's the first time i felt i let i let really let a player down uh for a lot of reasons uh, we let the club down uh uh we let football down probably as well um because we acted the wrong way but the only excuse i can find if i can find an excuse is that none of us were I'd ever faced anything like this before uh, and we just didn't know how to handle it and I mean from the owner down I mean you should have seen the reaction of the owners towards towards all this they were more than on site you know with us and, and wanting to to be on Luis's side so even at an cheap level or board level where you think okay they, you know those people are removed from the situation and they can help they, they were caught in the storm as emotionally as much as we were so it was all wrong. It was it was all wrong. Daniel Levy, you probably know him better than most people. Um, he very rarely speaks. He gave a, an interview recently about the stadium, but that's about it. Um, but can you give us a little bit of insight into him? Is he good for Tottenham? Is he bad for Tottenham? Is the truth somewhere in the middle? What on earth is he like? Having the same sentence, Daniel Levy and bad for Tottenham is a shock for me. Because I actually I was discussing this with Billy Bean when 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 I was over in the States and Billy said something very interesting. Uh, keeping in mind that Billy is probably you know one of the best sports executive of of all time, and he said he said what people should understand is that Daniel Levy across all sports around the planet is one of the best executive at the moment. If you are to do a top five of the best sports executive in the world at the moment, you will include Daniel in it. Uh, he's just an incredible brain. He's just what he's achieved. He's not only intelligent, but he, I mean, extremely intelligent. But he's incredibly driven. And having built a stadium like he has, I've been built a training ground that we did it together. But I've built a, when I was there. I've built a training, or, or we created it. We built a stadium that is built. That is, it's the best stadium in the world. I mean, I was in Miami for the Super Bowl. I can guarantee you the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami is is one tenth of of the stadium at Spurs. I mean, it's it's just amazing. I had the privilege they invite he invited me there for for a game. It's just it's just astonishing the quality of that stadium. He delivered the stadium. He's delivered a fantastic product on the pitch for five or six years running. They've got the best training ground in 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 the industry. Uh, you know, give. Give me one example of somebody who took a club with an old stadium, poor training ground, 
And then about 15 years later, it's the best stadium in the world. It's the best training ground in the world. Uh, they've got incredible assets in the team. They took that. I mean, who would that say that Spurs will get into the Champions League final? Honestly, you know. So you c people can say, oh, but they haven't spent enough money and they were one player short from winning the league and one player short from winning the Champions League. But remember where Tottenham was? If I tell you, <laughs> if I tell you the team that we had in 2005 and we finished fifth with that team to the team that is not is comp competing and, and got to the Champions League final, people will laugh, you know. So... They are in a different planet, and it's all thanks to him. He's got great people around him. He's got a great board. He's probably the most unified board in football, the most forward-thinking, adaptable, flexible board. Uh, they are clever. They are shrewd commercially. They did great job, you know, doing the Nike deal and and uh, and sponsorship, etc. They sold this, the seats at the stadium. Um, I mean, they are very, very, very good. Yeah. Uh, yet there is a group of supporters who want Enoch out. You see it on social media and on the message groups. They think that Daniel Levy and Enoch are holding Tottenham back from making the step up to actually winning trophies. I don't know what to say. Your I, look says it all. <laughs> I think it's so ludicrous. That I, I don't know what to say. Uh, they should have a statue of Daniel Levy in front of the stadium. That's what I will say. Seriously, of course, of course. I mean, look, they they pay less. Way they until now they couldn't compete wages wise, transfer fee wise. They just couldn't compete, and despite that, they managed to compete at the very top to finish second or third to get to the Champions League final. Uh, okay, okay, they could have won maybe a cup or something like this. Okay, fine, I I, I agree with that. But in the end, Daniel and uh, Daniel to the club into a dimension that personally, I w and I follow the club very closely and I'm very friendly with Daniel and other people, I would have never thought he would take that club that quickly into that dimension. Imagine now, you know, would you say Spurs are ahead of Arsenal? They are. Commercially they are, football-wise they are. On every front, do you think five, even five years ago, before Mauricio arrived, if you would have said, Spurs will be ahead of Arsenal in five years' time. You would have said there is no chance. No chance. And they are. And there is nobody else who's done that in Europe over the last 15 years. Is Jose Mourinho the right manager to help them make that step up to trophies? Or is it going to end in tears? If, if you look at it from the outside, you think there cannot be any alignment between ownership and the, and, and the manager. Uh, because of his past, you know, he wants ready-made players, yeah. he wants to win straight away. Spurs is about developing players, finding young talent, either they produce them or they buy them from the outside and then make them, turn them into world stars. And I had this discussion with Daniel Severstein, you know, your DNA until now at Tottenham was not to buy stars, but was to make stars and, and develop players into world stars. And they've been fantastic at it because of, you know, mainly in the last few years, because of Mauricio's uh, Pochettino coaching skills and, and the trust he put in young players. So now from the outside, obviously you, you, people will think there is no alignment between, between Jose Mourinho and what Spurs are. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. The difficulty is when you interview managers, and I've been through this many, many times, because they want the job, 
they tell you, oh yeah, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll respect your culture, I buy into what you're trying to achieve. And then once they are in the job, they're a different beast and they forgot what they told you during the interview process. So it's not going to happen with Daniel. If Jose Mourinho wants to act differently, he, he will be the loser and Daniel will be the winner in that fight. And rightly so because he owns the club uh, and he, he puts his money into it. So I, I think Jose Mourinho will have to adapt to the way Spurs, you know, to their business model, to their culture, to their values, to their DNA. And if that's the case, there is no reason for it to end in tears. If that's not the case, it will end in tears. Are we already seeing some of the old Jose in not using Troy Parrott, not using so much Ryan Sessegnon and a lot of Spurs fans saying, come on, use these guys while the uh, key players like Harry Kane and Hyunmin Son are out injured? But Mauricio was not using Sessegnon either. So... I, I, look, this season is is not a season to judge to judge Mauricio uh, sorry to judge Jose Mourinho or the relationship or the alignments between between the the board and and the and, and the coaching staff. We'll see what happens from next season. We'll see what happens in the summer transfer window, and then we can start commenting on it. You mentioned a while ago about a director of football in Manchester United. To me, and I've said it a number of times on this podcast, it's an absolute no-brainer. Why do Manchester United not have one? Do they need one? And is that appointment key to their chances of getting back or getting to where they want to be? I think every club needs a sporting director. So the answer is yes, they do need one. Uh, I think the size and the magnitude of, of Manchester United, I was reading recently in the press, they are creating a massive uh, project to expand their academy, talent pools to pick from, you know, in the northwest, etc. Yeah, right. uh, that, uh, that needs coordination, that needs leadership. You, can't, you will come from the academy people and from Nicky, obviously, but, but then it's, it's how do you align first team academy uh, scouting, etc., and that, that that having a director of football in place with power uh, will help massively. Why they don't have one, I don't know. It's because they've chosen until now not to have one. Because if if Manchester United come out and say we are doing, we are looking for a director of football on the same day, they'll get probably around three thousand CVs, <laughs> you know, and and fifty yeah, of the true. best and fifty of the best in the world. Uh, just just to give you just to give you an idea about the industry, we advertise. Uh, on my LinkedIn account uh, as as sporting director of Fenerbahce and on the club LinkedIn account, we advertise for a head of coaching and methodology for our academy at, at Fenerbahce. We receive 406 applications. Incredible. So you can imagine the, the kind of interest that Manchester United would attract for, for a job like this or for any job for as, as a matter, matter of fact. So yes, they need. I'm convinced they need one. When are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? With what level of, of, of duties and responsibility? That's for them to decide. But I think if they were to have the right person into that job to give all the support that the manager needs, all the support to the academy needs to link between the two, the academy and the first team, which is part of the DNA of Manchester United, I think that will help them massively to take the, their project onto a different level like Liverpool did, like Spurs did with Sivicin, or, or many other clubs. So what might be holding them back? The owners um, not having faith in that model? Ed Woodward not wanting to relinquish that power? I don't know, David. This, I, I can't comment because I, I really don't know. Do you know Ed Woodward? And if so, does he um, 
get an unfair deal off the public and the fans who have been criticizing him so much? I met with Ed a few, a few times, including privately, but it's nothing not related to uh, any job at Manchester United. Uh, he comes across as someone very bright, uh, very, very hardworking. Um, he's also driven. I, I think what they they keep you know feeding f- to the press, looking from the outside, you will know better than I do. You know that they believe in this project, they believe in the current manager, they believe what they are doing is right, and then and then it will be f- it will be fruitful in the end. I think they genuinely believe in this, and I think they've got they. I think they are convinced they are going to the right direction, and they are not going to to move from that. And you have to give them credit for this because it's better to have somebody in charge who actually has got a strategy, believe what he is doing, has got a vision, and stick to it than to have someone who changed strategy over three months or has got no strategy whatsoever. That doesn't work either. So uh, I respect him a lot for that because he, he seems to be very focused and he seems to be convinced on, on, on how things should be done and delivered and, and what Manchester United should look like in the future. And we need to. I think he needs time. We need to give them time. The problem is, it's Manchester United. You uh, also worked at Arsenal. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you still speak to Arsene Wenger. Um, what does he make of what's going on there? What do you make of what's going on there at Arsenal? Is Mikel Arteta the right man to lead them forward to success and the new structure that they've got in place? Could not be more different to the structure when you were there and when Arsene was there. Well, I'm not. I, I know Arsene doesn't want to talk about Arsenal, so I'm not certainly not going to talk on his behalf about Arsenal. And to be perfectly honest with you, we had lunch last week in Paris, uh, and we didn't talk about Arsenal once. I think throughout the lunch, we talked about football, his job at FIFA, etc., etc. My experience, my job at Fenerbahce, but we 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 didn't talk about Arsenal. Um, so I don't really know what he thinks. Uh, what do I think? I think they they. Uh, appointed, they made the wrong appointment to start when they, they the new the new team came in, um, the new board or, or, or executive sports football executive came in. Um, I think Emery was the wrong appointment. Um, it's interesting that they tried to go back to some Arsenal DNA uh, by appointing uh, appointing Arteta uh, because he knows the club, he's, he's captain the club, uh, with and appointing Edu as well as a sporting director. Or technical director. Um, so again, it's it's very early in the project. Um, I, I think the difficulty, one of the, the uh, one of the two difficulties I've I see I see coming because I've experienced those before. One, they've got their best player with one year left on his contract. It's Obama Young, um, so they need to keep him because he's really the difference maker in that team and without him it will be not be the same team uh, and they've got a massive decision to make in the summer so if they if they don't extend this contract between now and the transfer window then they need to decide you know they let him go on a free the following season 2021 or they have to sell um, and that's a massive decision and I don't think top four will be enough for him. I think he's at the point of his career where he wants to win. So they need to convince him that they can win from next season. And that's going to be extremely challenging. Uh, and the second aspect is they need Pepe to do well. 
Uh, and that's why I was saying, relating to my, some of my previous experience. When you spend 80 million on a player and he doesn't perform, you have a problem. You have a problem as a club, you have a problem as a coach, because what do you do with him? You have to trust him. Uh, as a club, you have to do everything possible to make him successful. And if that's, that player is not successful, it's something that could impact their team for the next two or three years. Because he's their marquee signing, because he's their key signing, because they invested so much money in him. So he needs to do well. Why doesn't Arsene Wenger want to talk about Arsenal? I didn't say he doesn't want to talk about it. I just said in that particular, we haven't spoken about Arsenal for, I don't know, maybe the last four, five or six times we spoke and we speak every week. <laughs> it seems surprising to many people that he wouldn't be the director of football there. He's he's the head of football at FIFA now. Look, if I, if I, I, for me, it's very simple. If I was Stan Kroenke, I will call Arsene Wenger. I will say, what position do you want? You want to be executive chairman? You want to be chief executive, you want to be president of football operation, please, we welcome you at the club and make all the decisions and run the club for us. That's what I will do if I was Stan Kroenke. You've got things to be doing tonight, so I've got to rattle for you a, a few questions. You, you move around European football circles. Is the feeling that Manchester City are going to be banned from the Champions League or is it too unpredictable to say what's going to happen with Cass and their legal challenge? But I mean, it's not a feeling. It's 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 legal, you know. Full stop. It's 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 legal. Dot. It, I mean, you don't add anything because Cassis Cass is an independent body. We've had to deal a lot with them at at Fenerbahce. Uh, we've had financial fair play issues, non-payment, etc., etc. Anyway, so they are independent judges. They are professionals at their job. Nobody will influence them. So they will obey with the rules. So it's not what's the feeling. Is Cass will make a decision based on what they think is right. Is the feeling in European football that Manchester City are in big trouble here, that they flouted the rules? Yes. And the feeling is that Cass, nobody can influence Cass. So the feeling is, my gut feeling is that Cass will do what they think is right. And it could be bad for Manchester City. Would that lead to an exodus of players? Yes. Because at the moment, a player, a top player doesn't play Champions League. It's just it's unthinkable. So not only I think it will lead to an exodus of players, but it will mean they will struggle to attract players at the same time. Uh, you know, if you say to De Bruyne or to Raheem, or to Agrero, um, uh, you're not going to play Champions League for two years. That's going to be very, very, very challenging. One year be okay? Yeah, I think one year is manageable. Two years is really a long time. And don't forget that in two years, there is the World Cup as well uh, in 2022. So to tell players you are not going to play Champions League for two years and the second year is a World Cup year where you need to get there at the top of your form, pick up your form, even though it will be a November to December World Cup in Qatar. Uh, you need to be seen by your your national team manager, etc., etc. I think that will be extremely challenging. Are there rivals going to be launching legal challenges against Manchester City, against UEFA or whoever, because they missed out on trophies, they missed out on Champions League qualification, they missed out on revenues? Or do you think that is a altogether too complicated subject to get into? 
I think it's a t I think it's a too complicated subject to get into. Uh, I think what has happened at UEFA level is different than what happens at Premier League level. The role, the financial fair play rules, both sets of rules are different for the Premier League and 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 for UEFA. They are a lot more flexible in the Premier League than yet they are for UEFA. So which on which legal ground the clubs will go after them? Will it be on UEFA financial fair play? Will it be on Premier League financial fair play? Are they uh, let's assume they bend the rules. Have they bend the rules domestically or have they bend the rules only internationally at UFR level? I'm not a solicitor. I'm not a QC. <laughs> so that's too technical for, for me to say. But personally, I, I, my gut feeling is that it will be very, very complicated to do. A few people high up within Premier League clubs have said this is just going to drive Manchester City to push with other clubs for a breakaway Super League to come away from all of this come away from financial restrictions and set up their own clothes shop? I don't think they'll get any support from the other big five in the Premier League uh, because I don't I don't think the big f the other big teams in the Premier League have got any appetite for this. Uh, if there is appetite on the European level, it's only a few clubs. I don't think it's the case in the Premier League. One way, part of me feels sorry for Manchester City because... I've got great respect for what they've achieved until now because they've achieved it with money, but they've put structure in place, they've got strategy, you know what their culture is, you know what their values are, you know how they scout, how they recruit, how they develop players, you know what type of players they they, they want to, hire, to, to, to uh, sign. Uh, you, when you see their youth team, team play, you see exactly what they want to achieve. They push mental well-being to an extent that probably is unknown in world football. Um, as Arsene said a few years ago, he said they've got petrol and ideas, which is, a, he translated from a French saying. And sometimes, you know, I've got a lot less petrol respect. Petrol and ideas. Yeah. So I've got a lot, le lot less respect and time for people who just throw money at them, at it. They throw money at it, but they also achieve something great be, be, behind be, beyond the, the money aspect and and for that I've got a lot of respect. I think I'll just uh, finish by um, asking you one thing about you. Uh, we've talked about the clubs that you worked for in the case of Tottenham and Liverpool they've gone on to much better things long after your departure. Um, do you feel that you helped lay the foundations at those clubs and your work wasn't appreciated until much later? And do you think you get unfair criticism from public press fans? I don't read the press. I'm not on social well, I was not on social media until a few weeks ago. So I don't know about criticism or anything like this. I I care I do care a lot about judgment from my peers or from people working above me. Uh, that's the most important thing for me. And if I keep getting jobs, it means that I've got some credibility on, on, on the market. And if clubs I've left or people I work with call me and ask me for advice, it means that you know they, they, they value my, my opinion. That's the most important thing for me, a lot more than uh, PR or my image in the public or amongst the fans. That really is absolutely at the bottom of, of anything I do. Uh, uh, most important thing is what football people think about me. You know, they want my opinion. They ask for advice. Uh, I get job offers on a regular basis, so that's also very important. Yeah, good. Uh, and do I feel I laid on foundations? Yeah, a little bit. When 
when Spurs played Liverpool in the Champions League final and uh, both sporting directors that worked under me, one as I took as an analyst and then he ended up sporting director of Liverpool and then the other one was a local scout and he ends up the sporting director of Spurs, it's, you know, Steve Chin and Michael Edwards. I'm delighted for them, absolutely delighted. And I'm glad that I, at some point in their career, I've helped them getting to where they are. I think that's the perfect way to end it. We thank you very much for joining us on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast and good luck with whatever comes next. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.